It's Wednesday. At least it is when I'm broadcasting live right now. Shouts out to everybody who's locked in live. Shouts out to everyone who's waiting patient. Look at you. Look at you. You're already here. God bless. Shouts out to everyone listening on the replay. We're going in, baby. Disc 13. Do you any Dune? Dune, baby. Dune. straight to the dune i'm gonna get straight to the book then there should be a timestamp link in the description of this broadcast hit that otherwise hold tight baby strap in we in here if you are locked in live on youtube right now do me a favor and uh smash that like take that link post it in a group chat or a discord or something of that nature tweet it parlor it instagram it all that beautiful days to be alive here at the peak of recorded human days to be alive let's get it
What up, duh? Brothers and sisters of the Meaning Wave Mill Autonomous Zone, hi. Hi, one and all. Great day, woo. How y'all doing? Let me know how you're doing. That's what we need to know right now. We've got an international high five to do. And all I want to know for the international high five today is this, baby. Where on God's green earth you are. And let's have that recap. We need a recap, baby. A recap. Recap. Yeah. Ahmed visuals. Yeah, and that means, uh, you know, what has happened on Dune so far for all the newbies. All the millions of newbies. Ahmed visuals. Akira, I messaged you on a stream about using a song. You said it could. Problem is, my lecturer said you needed to sign a form to give permission. Could you sign the form how to contact you? Uh... Clip this right now. Just clip this. This is me. Hi, lecturer. I give permission to Ahmed Visuals uh, to use uh, the music I have made in his uh, thing that he is making. And uh, thank you for doing such a wonderful job of edumacating his ass. You bad motherfucker, you. There you go. That should work. If that doesn't work, I don't know what to say to you. But, uh... Yo, how y'all doing anyway? What's going on? Barbell Fishman's in the house. Stoked to be here, man. A long day. Ganja Guru's in the house. Sick and taking fat dabs and riding the dune wave. You can't stop Ganja Guru. Like it says on the tin. Guys, get after it. Uh, MXMLLN. Good point, ATD. Thank you. Spaghetti to the lot. Boone716. I'm doing well. Thank you, Akira the Don. Put my kids in bed one at a time. Uh, yes, that's the right thing to do. Try doing both at once. It can be confusing. You know, you need str- you need two strong arms, and then you can manage two maybe. Yeah. Boom! A and B is in the house. Was cracking. Try out Gurney sang a sad song, and Paul became a man via murder. Whoa! Last week was so epic, wasn't it? Holy cow! Holy cow. Bob L. Fishman says, Akira like, we don't have to bring ink and paper into this. <laughs> I just ain't got time to be signing things all day. Like, if everyone starts, like, maybe I'll, I need to um, do a standard release form or something that goes on the website that people can download if they need that sort of thing. That's probably a good idea, huh? That's a good idea. Yo. MXMLLN. Was this guy always this funny or has he been taking lessons in Austin? Who's Austin? How'd you learn it? Ganjaguro. So how was your day, Kira? Hey, thanks for asking, Ganjaguro. Well, I had a wonderful day, you know, absolutely wonderful day. Uh, my alarm didn't go off, so I was like 20 minutes late to get up. So I was, I was a little late for my morning show, but that 20 minutes of extra sleep that I got was wonderful. I felt so good, baby. I felt so good. I was like, I could bench press 15 nuns, wrestle a polar bear, punch a tiger in the dick. You know, I felt good. I felt G-O-O-D good, baby. And uh, we had a great morning show, you know. We had a wonderful morning show. And uh, then I had a wonderful day today working on uh, one of two albums that I'm working on concurrently right now. And uh, I finished stage one of the album, which means the whole album is laid out, uh, written, composed, arranged, uh, choruses, all that thing. Stage two is detailing. That's when I kind of add all the little flourishes. 
Uh, it was great, baby. I spent about uh, 45 minutes today just straight up playing synth solos. It was really fun. I had a really good time playing synth solos. That was great. What else happened? I went for a walk with my son like I do every morning. Yeah, we go we go for a walk. That was fun. Uh, in the local area, someone had dug in their garden and they dug through one of the water pipes or something. So all the water went out for the whole neighborhood and these guys were down there fixing it and they were really fun. Hercules was like really excited. All this water was gushing out the ground. His diggers scooping up all the mud and shit. It was very fun. Ate some steak, you know? Drank some water. Pretty joyful. Pretty, pretty joyful. MXMLLN says, yes, release form, please. Release form. I wonder if I can copy one of some. Boom, 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 boom. Ahmed Visual says, yeah, do that, please. Ha ha. Ha ha. Was that a nervous ha ha? Or a hearty haha. Ha. Uh, Boone 716 recap. Paul met the girl of his dreams last time. Then he got called out by some jerk and had to kill him, even though he didn't want to. You know nothing, Paul. Yeah, you got a new name as well, didn't he? You got a name? Mordeb! Uh, what's really cool, by the way, if you want a recap of Dune. Uh, there's a Marvel comic book of Dune. There's a Dune Marvel comic from the 80s. It was, it was an adaption of the movie, I guess. But it was kind of also, the, the movie wasn't finished yet, so it was kind of half based on the book as well. Anyway, it basically, it kind of like goes through the whole book in like 20 pages. It's like each chapter is like one page. It's so incredibly condensed. Well, they don't have chapters, do they? But like section, like a disc. Last week we did two discs, you know? And everything that happened last week, uh, if you read the Dune comic book adaption, they compressed that whole thing into like one pe- one or two pages. It's amazing. Regular father. I got my Meaning Wave merch and my laptop yesterday. Now I'm sitting here trying to wrap my head around collage. Super great day. Hurrah! Congratulations to you. Hope you enjoy your Meaning Wave merch. I know I do. I bloody love mine. Kyla Sherrard says, man child means Chani. Boom. Swag. Bob L. Fishman. Hello, Chris Augusta. If you're here, thank you for being here. Blessed be the spiritual patriarch. I, Kira the Don, say hello to my godfather. He loved your stream last night. Hey, what up, Chris Augusta? What up, Chris Augusta? Glad you enjoyed last night. Hope you enjoyed tonight. Tonight is rare. Uh, M-X-M-L-L-N. The sleeper has awakened. This is true. Yo. Uh, Ahmed Visual says, all right, I'll ask the uni, but by the way, it was an online form. You don't have to physically sign it. Uh, I'm sure your online uni appreciates that I have better things to be doing with my time than uh, like involving myself with their bureaucracy. You know, if they want to have lots of bureaucracy, fine. However, I have lots of important things to do, like amazing albums. Bye, Joe! (laughs) (sighs) All right, let's get our international high five going. And uh, let's get after it. Baby, baby, baby. 
Regular Father says, my hoodie is very toasty and lets the world know that it's a beautiful day to be alive. Hurrah! Well, that sure is good news. Alrighty, yeah, let's get it. International high five. Smash that like. Susan seems really intent to not send out our notifications lately. I don't know what's up with her. Ooh. Three, two, one. Hi. Incidentally, by the way, we're celebrating our 200 morning streams tomorrow morning. It'll be 200 uh, mornings in a row that I've gotten up at an ungodly hour and DJed and got after it. 269, I believe it is. Is it 69 dudes? 69 dudes. Uh, it's a bit like 99 red balloons, but less, you know. Uh, yeah, it's 269 days we've been streaming every day. And uh, for 200 of those days, we've been streaming twice a day. Uh, tomorrow morning. So uh, join us tomorrow morning for a 200 morning stream celebration. I have no idea what we're doing yet. I've got to come. I've got to pull something epic out of my butt, you know. Got to pull something epic out of my butt, Bob L. Fishman. Tryout says mornings make a man of you. I think that's what happened to me this year. I think I finally like became capital M man. I think prior to the forcing myself to get up early every single day, I wasn't a full M. I was. I was like, I don't know, eighty-three percent or something. Ahmed Vigil says, yeah, for sure, video evidence seems to make more sense than a signature anyway. Well, yeah, you could forge my signature. You could forge me filling in a form. You could forge that easy. What you can't forge is this beautiful face, you know, and, uh, and this sparkling, uh, you know, presence. You cannot forge that, baby. Yes. Ooh. Baby, we're about to go in. Tryout says deep fake video of ATD filling out the signature. Yeah, you try that. Get after it. Let me get the chat up on screen. Hey, hey. Uh, shout out to everyone who's here and uh, and not playing uh, Cyberpunk 77. Pretty sure a bunch of people are going to be playing that right now. I bet. And a lot of people, weirdly, uh, over a million people. 
are uh, are watching people play it on Switch. You're just watching walkthroughs, like spoiling themselves, you know, spoiling themselves while uh, bumholes have got advanced copies. Uh, race through the early levels as fast as possible to get that sweet, sweet, sweet early content, you know. That sweet, sweet first clicks. That rushed playthrough, baby. That beautiful rushed playthrough. Everybody loves that. Everybody loves that rushed playthrough. It must be weird being like a video game YouTuber, you know what I mean? It's like, oh, you can't really enjoy the game, you just gotta rush through it fast as possible. So you're the first person to have that content up, so if anyone searches for whatever level, they go to your channel. That's the game, that's the name of the game, right? Shouts out to Tagback TV. I like Tagback TV, he's good at that shit. He's a funny guy, you know? Uh, he's very good at his job. Shouts out to the professional video game players baby tonight's a big night for you big night for you guys tonight get after it i mean i know you're not listening to me right now so i don't know why i'm addressing you you're very very busy rushing through that game as fast as possible even though it hasn't come out yet hurrah having trouble my brain just went really weird i couldn't uh, it stopped working that was really strange you ever get that your brain just stops working it's like why am i what am i doing i was like um you know i mean this is not my beautiful house (laughs) what have i done who am i where am i what am i doing what's the what what is going on here i really had one of those moments i was like what the fuck where am i what am i trying to do Oh, and then, it's, and then it faded back. It's like, oh, yeah, I'm copy-pasting the address of the chat into the box over here so the chat goes on screen, which I do every single day. It's a weird little task that I do every single day. Now you can see yourselves talking on the screen. Look at that. Isn't that sweet? Yeah! Ahmed Visual says, by the way, I've got to cut the film if you want to see it. It's a four-minute hitter. Uh, because you said hitter... And four minutes, yeah, send it over, I'll watch it. Four minutes is good, that's a hit, I love it, I love it. That four minute hit up! All right, baby, let's get after it. Dune! God created Arrakis. God created Arrakis to train the faithful. From the wisdom of Muad'Dib, by the Princess Irulan. In the stillness of the cavern, Jessica heard the scrape of sand on rock as people moved, the distant bird calls that Stilgar had said were the signals of his watchers. The great plastic hood seals had been removed from the cave's opening. She could see the march of evening shadows across the lip of rock in front of her and the open basin beyond. She sensed the daylight leaving them, 
sensed it in the dry heat as well as the shadows. She knew her trained awareness soon would give her what these Fremen obviously had, the ability to sense even the slightest change in the air's moisture. How they had scurried to tighten their still suits when the cave was opened. Deep within the cave, someone began chanting, Ima Trava Okolo, Aikoranja Okolo. Jessica translated silently, These are ashes, and these are roots. The funeral ceremony for Jameis was beginning. She looked out at the Arakeen sunset, at the banked decks of color in the sky. Night was beginning to utter its shadows along the distant rocks and the dunes. Yet the heat persisted. Heat forced her thoughts onto water, and the observed fact that this whole people could be trained to be thirsty only at given times. Thirst. She could remember moonlit waves on Caladan throwing white robes over rocks, and the wind heavy with dampness. Now the breeze that fingered her robes seared the patches of exposed skin at cheeks and forehead. The new nose plugs irritated her, and she found herself overly conscious of the tube that trailed down across her face into the suit, recovering her breath's moisture. The suit itself was a sweatbox. Your suit will be more comfortable when you've adjusted to a lower water content in your body, Silgar had said. She knew he was right, but the knowledge made this moment no more comfortable. The unconscious preoccupation with water here weighed on her mind. No, she corrected herself, it was preoccupation with moisture. And that was a more subtle and profound matter. She heard approaching footsteps, turned to see Paul come out of the cave's depth, trailed by the elfin-faced Chani. There's another thing, Jessica thought. Paul must be cautioned about their women. One of these desert women would not do as wife to a duke. As concubine, yes, but not as wife. And she wondered at herself, thinking, have I been infected with his schemes? And she saw how well she had been conditioned. I can think of the marital needs of royalty without once weighing my own concubinage. Yet I was more than concubine. Mother? Paul stopped in front of her. Chani stood at his elbow. Mother, do you know what they're doing back there? Jessica looked at the dark patch of his eyes staring out from the hood. I think so. Chani showed me because I'm supposed to see it and give my permission for the weighing of the water. Jessica looked at Chani. They're recovering Jameis's water, Chani said, and her thin voice came out nasal past the nose plugs. It's the rule. The flesh belongs to the person, but his water belongs to the tribe, except in the combat. They say the water's mine. Paul said. Jessica wondered why this should make her suddenly alert and cautious. Combat water belongs to the winner, Chani said. It's because you have to fight in the open without still suits. The winner has to get his water back that he loses while fighting. I don't want his water, Paul muttered. He felt that he was a part of many images moving simultaneously in a fragmenting way that was disconcerting to the inner eye. He could not be certain what he would do, but of one thing he was positive. 
he did not want the water distilled out of Jameis's flesh. It's water, Charlie said. Jessica marveled at the way she said it. Water, so much meaning in a simple sound. A Bene Gesserit axiom came to Jessica's mind. Survival is the ability to swim in strange water. And Jessica thought, Paul and I, we must find the currents and patterns in these strange waters if we're to survive. You will accept the water, Jessica said. She recognized the tone in her voice. She had used that same tone once with Leto, telling her lost duke that he would accept a large sum offered for his support in a questionable venture, because money maintained power for the Atreides. On Arrakis, water was money. She saw that clearly. Paul remained silent, knowing then that he would do as she ordered, not because she ordered it, but because her tone of voice had forced him to reevaluate. To refuse the water would be to break with accepted Fremen practice. Presently, Paul recalled the words of 467 Kalima in Yui's O.C. Bible. He said, From water does all life begin. Jessica stared at him. Where did he learn that quotation, she asked herself. He hasn't studied the mysteries. Thus it is spoken, Chani said. Giudichar Mantene, it is written in the Shanama that water was the first of all things created. For no reason she could explain, and this bothered her more than the sensation, Jessica suddenly shuddered. She turned away to hide her confusion and was just in time to see the sunset. A violent calamity of color spilled over the sky as the sun dipped beneath the horizon. It is time. The voice was still Gars ringing in the cavern. Jameis's weapon has been killed. Jameis has been called by him, by Shai Hulud, who has ordained the phases for the moons that daily wane and, in the end, appear as bent and withered twigs. Stilgar's voice lowered. Thus it is with Jameis. Silence fell like a blanket on the cavern. Jessica saw the grey shadow movement of Stilgar like a ghost figure within the dark inner reaches. She glanced back at the basin, sensing the coolness. The friends of Jameis will approach, Stilgar said. Men moved behind Jessica, dropping a curtain across the opening. A single glow globe was lighted overhead far back in the cave. Its yellow glow picked out an inflowing of human figures. Jessica heard the rustling of the robes. Chani took a step away as though pulled by the light. Jessica bent close to Paul's ear, speaking in the family code. Follow their lead, do as they do. It will be a simple ceremony to placate the shade of Jameis. It will be more than that, Paul thought. And he felt a wrenching sensation within his awareness, as though he were trying to grasp something in motion and render it motionless. Chani glided back to Jessica's side, took her hand. Come, say Adina, we must sit apart. Paul watched them move off into the shadows, leaving him alone. He felt abandoned. The men who had fixed the curtain came up beside him. Come, Musul. He allowed himself to be guided forward, 
to be pushed into a circle of people being formed around Stilgar, who stood beneath the glow globe and beside a bundled, curving, and angular shape gathered beneath a robe on the rock floor. The troop crouched down at a gesture from Stilgar, their robes hissing with the movement. Paul settled with them, watching Stilgar, noting the way the overhead globe made pits of his eyes and brightened the touch of green fabric at his neck. Paul shifted his attention to the robe-covered mound at Stilgar's feet, recognized the handle of a balisset protruding from the fabric. The spirit leaves the body's water when the first moon rises, Stilgar intoned. Thus it is spoken, when we see the first moon rise, this night, whom will it summon? Jamis, the troop responded. Stilgar turned full circle on one heel, passing his gaze across the ring of faces. I was a friend of Jamis, he said, when the hawk plane stooped upon us at hole in the rock. It was Jamis pulled me to safety. He bent over the pile beside him, lifted away the robe. I take this robe as a friend of Jamis, leader's right. He draped the robe over a shoulder, straightening. Now Paul saw the contents of the mound exposed. The pale, glistening gray of a still suit, a battered leader john, a kerchief with a small book in its center, the bladeless handle of a chris knife, an empty sheath, a folded pack, a paracompass, a distrans, a thumper, a pile of fist-sized metallic hooks, an assortment of what looked like small rocks within a fold of cloth, a clump of bundled feathers, and the balisset exposed beside the folded pack. So, Jameis played the balisset, Paul thought. The instrument reminded him of Gurney Halleck and all that was lost. Paul knew with his memory of the future and the past that some chance lines could produce a meeting with Halleck, but the reunions were few and shadowed. They puzzled him. The uncertainty factor touched him with wonder. Does it mean that something I will do, that I may do, could destroy Gurney? Or bring him back to life? Or... Paul swallowed, shook his head. Again, Stilgar bent over the mound. For Jameis's woman and for the guards, he said. The small rocks and the book were taken into the folds of his robe. Leader's right, the troop intoned. The marker for Jameis's coffee service, Stilgar said, and he lifted a flat disc of green metal. That it shall be given to Usul in suitable ceremony when we return to the search. Leader's right, the troop intoned. Lastly, he took the Chris knife handle and stood with it. For the funeral plane, he said. For the funeral plane, the troop responded. At her place in the circle across from Paul, Jessica nodded, recognizing the ancient source of the right, and she thought, the meeting between ignorance and knowledge. Between brutality and culture, it begins in the dignity with which we treat our dead. She looked across at Paul, wondering, will he see it? Will he know what to do? We are friends of Jameis, Stilgar said. 
We are not wailing for our dead like a pack of Garvarg. A grey-bearded man to Paul's left stood up. I was a friend of Jameis, he said. He crossed to the mound, lifted the distrans. When our water went below Minim at the siege at two brids, Jameis shared. The man returned to his place in the circle. Am I supposed to say I was a friend of Jameis? Paul wondered. Do they expect me to take something from that pile? He saw faces turn toward him, turn away. They do expect it. Another man across from Paul arose, went to the pack and removed the paracompass. I was a friend of Jameis, he said. When the patrol caught us at bite of the cliff and I was wounded, Jameis drew them off so the wounded could be saved. He returned to his place in the circle. Again the faces turned toward Paul, and he saw the expectancy in them, lowered his eyes. An elbow nudged him, and a voice hissed, Would you bring the destruction on us? How can I say I was his friend? Paul wondered. Another figure arose from the circle opposite Paul, and as the hooded face came into the light, he recognized his mother. She removed a kerchief from the mount. I was a friend of Jameis, she said. When the spirit of spirits within him saw the needs of truth, that spirit withdrew and spared my son. She returned to her place. And Paul recalled the scorn in his mother's voice as she had confronted him after the fight. How does it feel to be a killer? Again he saw the faces turned toward him, felt the anger and fear in the troop. A passage his mother had once film-booked for him on the cult of the dead flickered through Paul's mind. He knew what he had to do. Slowly, Paul got to his feet. A sigh passed around the circle. Paul felt the diminishment of his self as he advanced into the center of the circle. It was as though he lost a fragment of himself and sought it here. He bent over the mound of belongings, lifted out the balisette. A string twanged softly as it struck against something in the pile. I was a friend of Jameis, Paul whispered. He felt tears burning his eyes, forced more volume into his voice. Jameis taught me that when you kill, you pay for it. I wish I'd known Jameis better. Blindly, he groped his way back to his place in the circle sank to the rock floor. A voice hissed. He sheds tears. It was taken up around the ring. Usul gives moisture to the dead. He felt fingers touch his damp cheek, heard the awed whispers. Jessica, hearing the voices, felt the depth of the experience, realized what terrible inhibitions there must be against shedding tears. She focused on the words, He gives moisture to the dead. It was a gift to the shadow world. Tears. They would be sacred beyond a doubt. Nothing on this planet had so forcefully hammered into her the ultimate value of water. Not the water cellars, not the dried skins of the natives, not still suits or the rules of water discipline. Here there was a substance more precious than all others. It was life itself, and entwined all around with symbolism and ritual. Water. I touched his cheek, someone whispered. I felt the gift. 
At first, the fingers touching his face frightened Paul. He clutched the cold handle of the balisette, feeling the strings bite his palm. Then he saw the faces beyond the groping hands, the eyes wide and wondering. Presently, the hands withdrew. The funeral ceremony resumed. But now there was a subtle space around Paul, a drawing back as the troop honored him by a respectful isolation. The ceremony ended with a low chant. Full moon calls thee, shy hulud shalt thou see. Red the night, dusky sky, bloody death didst thou die. We pray to a moon, she is round. Luck with us will then abound. What we seek for shall be found in the land of solid ground. A bulging sack remained at Stilgar's feet. He crouched, placed his palms against it. Someone came up beside him, crouched at his elbow, and Paul recognized Chani's face in the hood shadow. Jameis carried thirty-three liters and seven and three thirty seconds drachms of the tribe's water. Chani said, "I bless it now, in the presence of a Seadina, a Kerry Akairi. This is the water, Filisinfolasi of Paul Muadib, Kivi Akavi. Never the more Nakalas, Nakelas." To be measured and counted, Ukair An, by the heartbeats, Jan, 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 of our friend, Jamis. In an abrupt and profound silence, Chani turned, stared at Paul. Presently, she said, "Where I am flame, be thou the coals; where I am dew, be thou the water." Bilal Kaifa intoned the troop. To Paul Moadib goes this portion, Chani said. May he guard it for the tribe, preserving it against careless loss. May he be generous with it in time of need. May he pass it on in his time for the good of the tribe. Bilal Kaifa intoned the troop. I must accept that water, Paul thought. Slowly he arose, made his way to Chani's side. Silgar stepped back to make room for him, took the balisette gently from his hand. Kneel. Chani said. Paul knelt. She guided his hands to the water bag, held them against the resilient surface. With this water, the tribe entrusts thee, she said. Jamis is gone from it. Take it in peace. She stood, pulling Paul up with her. Stilgar returned the balisette, extended a small pile of metal rings in one palm. Paul looked at them, seeing the different sizes, the way the light of the glow globe reflected off them. Chani took the largest ring, held it on a finger. Thirty liters, she said. One by one, she took the others, showing each to Paul, counting them. Two liters, one liter, seven water counters of one drachm each, one water counter of three thirty-seconds drachms, in all. Thirty-three liters and seven and three thirty-seconds drachms. She held them up on her finger for Paul to see. Do you accept them? Stilgar asked. Paul swallowed, nodded. Yes. Later, Chani said, I will show you how to tie them in a kerchief so they won't rattle and give you away when you need silence. 
She extended her hand. Will you hold them for me? Paul asked. Chani turned a startled glance on Stilgar. He smiled, said, Paul Muadib, who is Usul, does not yet know our ways, Chani. Hold his water counters without commitment until it's time to show him the manner of carrying them. She nodded, whipped a ribbon of cloth from beneath her robe, linked the rings onto it with an intricate over and under weaving, hesitated, then stuffed them into the sash beneath her robe. I missed something there, Paul thought. He sensed the feeling of humor around him, something bantering in it, and his mind linked up a prescient memory. Water counters offered to a woman. Courtship ritual. Watermasters, Stilgar said. The troop arose in a hissing of robes. Two men stepped out, lifted the water back. Stilgar took down the glow globe, led the way with it into the depths of the cave. Paul was pressed in behind Chani, noted the buttery glow of light over rock walls, the way the shadows danced, and he felt the troops lift of spirits contained in a hushed air of expectancy. Jessica, pulled into the end of the troop by eager hands, hemmed around by jostling bodies, suppressed a moment of panic. She had recognized fragments of the ritual, identified the shards of Chakobsa and Botani Jib in the words, and she knew the wild violence that could explode out of these seemingly simple moments. Jan, 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 she thought. Go, go, go. It was like a child's game that had lost all inhibition in adult hands. Stilgar stopped at a yellow rock wall. He pressed an outcropping and the wall swung silently away from him, opening along an irregular crack. He led the way through, past a dark honeycomb lattice that directed a cool wash of air across Paul when he passed it. Paul turned a questioning stare on Chani, tugged her arm. That air felt damp, he said. Shh, she whispered. But a man behind them said, Plenty of moisture in the trap tonight. James's way of telling us he's satisfied. Jessica passed through the secret door, heard it close behind. She saw how the Fremen slowed while passing the honeycomb lattice, felt the dampness of the air as she came opposite it. Wind trap, she thought. They've a concealed wind trap somewhere on the surface to funnel air down here into cooler regions and precipitate the moisture from it. They passed through another rock door with latticework above it, and the door closed behind them. The draft of air at their backs carried a sensation of moisture clearly perceptible to both Jessica and Paul. At the head of the troop, the glow globe in Stilgar's hands dropped below the level of the heads in front of Paul. Presently he felt steps beneath his feet, curving down to the left. Light reflected back up across hooded heads and a winding movement of people spiraling down the steps. Jessica sensed mounting tension in the people around her, a pressure of silence that rasped her nerves with its urgency. The steps ended, and the troop passed through another low door. The light of the glow globe was swallowed in a great open space with a high curved ceiling. Paul felt Chani's hand on his arm, heard a faint dripping sound in the chill air, 
felt an utter stillness come over the Fremen in the cathedral presence of water. I have seen this place in a dream, he thought. The thought was both reassuring and frustrating. Somewhere ahead of him on this path, the fanatic hordes cut their gory path across the universe in his name. The green and black Atreides banner would become a symbol of terror. Wild legions would charge into battle, screaming their war cry, Muad'Dib. It must not be, he thought. I cannot let it happen. But he could feel the demanding race consciousness within him, his own terrible purpose, and he knew that no small thing could deflect the juggernaut. It was gathering weight and momentum. If he died this instant, the thing would go on through his mother and his unborn sister. Nothing less than the deaths of all the troop gathered here and now, himself and his mother included, could stop the thing. Paul stared around him, saw the troop spread out in a line. They pressed him forward against a low barrier carved from native rock. Beyond the barrier, in the glow of Stilgar's globe, Paul saw an unruffled, dark surface of water. It stretched away into shadows, deep and black, the far wall only faintly visible, perhaps a hundred meters away. Jessica felt the dry pulling of skin on her cheeks and forehead relaxing in the presence of moisture. The water pool was deep. She could sense its deepness and resisted a desire to dip her hands into it. A splashing sounded on her left. She looked down the shadowy line of Fremen, saw Stilgar with Paul standing beside him and the watermasters emptying their load into the pool through a flow meter. The meter was a round gray eye above the pool's rim. She saw its glowing pointer move as the water flowed through it, saw the pointer stop at 33 liters, 7 and 3.30 seconds drachms. Superb accuracy in water measurement, Jessica thought. And she noted that the walls of the meter trough held no trace of moisture after the water's passage. The water flowed off those walls without binding tension. She saw a profound clue to Fremen technology in the simple fact they were perfectionists. Jessica worked her way down the barrier to Stilgar's side. Way was made for her with casual courtesy. She noted the withdrawn look in Paul's eyes, but the mystery of this great pool of water dominated her thoughts. Stilgar looked at her. There were those among us in need of water, he said. Yet they would come here and not touch this water. Do you know that? I believe it, she said. He looked at the pool. We have more than 38 million decaliters here, he said. Walled off from the little makers, hidden and preserved. A treasure trove, she said. Stilgar lifted the globe to look into her eyes. It is greater than treasure. We have thousands of such caches. Only a few of us know them all. He cocked his head to one side. The globe cast a yellow shadowed glow across face and beard. Hear that? They listened. The dripping of water precipitated from the wind trap filled the room with its presence. 
Jessica saw that the entire troop was caught up in a rapture of listening. Only Paul seemed to stand remote from it. To Paul, the sound was like moments ticking away. He could feel time flowing through him, the instance never to be recaptured. He sensed a need for decision, but felt powerless to move. It has been calculated with precision. Stilgar whispered. We know to within a million decaliters how much we need. When we have it, we shall change the face of Arrakis. A hushed whisper of response lifted from the troop. Bilal Kaifa. We will trap the dunes beneath grass plantings. Stilgar said, his voice growing stronger. We will tie the water into the soil with trees and undergrowth. Bilal Kaifa, intoned the troop. Each year the polar ice retreats, Stilgar said. Bilal Kaifa, they chanted. We shall make a home world of Arrakis, with melting lenses at the poles, with lakes in the temperate zones, and only the deep desert for the maker and his spice. Bilal Kaifa. And no man ever again shall want for water. It shall be his for dipping from well or pond or lake or canal. It shall run down through the canats to feed our plants. It shall be there for any man to take. It shall be his for holding out his hand. Bilal Kaifa. Jessica felt the religious ritual in the words, noted her own instinctively awed response. They're in league with the future, she thought. They have their mountain to climb. This is the scientist's dream. And these simple people, these peasants, are filled with it. Her thoughts turned to Liet Kynes, the emperor's planetary ecologist, the man who had gone native. And she wondered at him. This was a dream to capture men's souls, and she could sense the hand of the ecologist in it. This was a dream for which men would die willingly. It was another of the essential ingredients that she felt her son needed, people with a goal. Such people would be easy to imbue with fervor and fanaticism. They could be wielded like a sword to win back Paul's place for him. We leave now, Stilgar said, and wait for the first moon's rising. When Jameis is safely on his way, we will go home. Whispering their reluctance, the troop fell in behind him, turned back along the water barrier and up the stairs. And Paul, walking behind Chani, felt that a vital moment had passed him, that he had missed an essential decision and was now caught up in his own myth. He knew he had seen this place before, experienced it in a fragment of prescient dream on faraway Caladan, but details of the place were being filled in now that he had not seen. He felt a new sense of wonder at the limits of his gift. It was as though he rode within the wave of time, sometimes in its trough, sometimes on a crest. And all around him the other waves lifted and fell, revealing and then hiding what they bore on their surface. Through it all, the wild jihad still loomed ahead of him, the violence and the slaughter. It was like a promontory above the surf. 
The troop filed through the last door into the main cavern. The door was sealed. Lights were extinguished. Hoods removed from the cavern openings, revealing the night and the stars that had come over the desert. Jessica moved to the dry lip of the cavern's edge, looked up at the stars. They were sharp and near. She felt the stirring of the troop around her, heard the sound of a balisette being tuned somewhere behind her, and Paul's voice humming the pitch. There was a melancholy in his tone that she did not like. Chani's voice intruded from the deep cave darkness. Tell me about the waters of your birth world, Paul Moadib. And Paul, another time, Chani, I promise. Such sadness. It's a good set, Chani said. Very good, Paul said. Do you think Jameis will mind my using it? He speaks of the dead in the present tense, Jessica thought. The implications disturbed her. A man's voice intruded. He liked music betimes, Jameis did. Then sing me one of your songs, Chani pleaded. Such feminine allure in that girl-child's voice, Jessica thought. I must caution Paul about their women, and soon... This was a song of a friend of mine, Paul said. I expect he's dead now, Gurney is. He called it his even song. The troop grew still, listening as Paul's voice lifted in a sweet boy tenor with a balisette tinkling and strumming beneath it. This clear time of seeing embers, a gold-bright sun is lost in first dusk. What frenzied senses, desperate musk, are consort of remembering? Jessica felt the verbal music in her breast, pagan and charged with sounds that made her suddenly and intensely aware of herself, feeling her own body and its needs. She listened with a tense stillness. Night's pearl-censored requiem is for us. What joys run, then, bright in your eyes? What flower-spangled amours pull at our hearts? What flower-spangled amours fill our desires? And Jessica heard the after-stillness that hummed in the air with the last note. Why does my son sing a love song to that girl-child? She asked herself. She felt an abrupt fear. She could sense life flowing around her, and she had no grasp on its reins. Why did he choose that song, she wondered. The instincts are true sometimes. Why did he do this? Paul sat silently in the darkness, a single stark thought dominating his awareness. My mother is my enemy. She does not know it, but she is. She is bringing the jihad. She bore me. She trained me. She is my enemy. The concept of progress acts as a protective mechanism to shield us from the terrors of the future. From collected sayings of Muad'Dib by the Princess Irulan. On his 17th birthday, 
say Drautha Harkonnen killed his 100th slave gladiator in the family games. Visiting observers from the imperial court, a count and Lady Fenring, were on the Harkonnen homeworld of Gedi Prime for the event, invited to sit that afternoon with the immediate family in the golden box above the triangular arena. In honor of the Nabaran's nativity, and to remind all Harkonnens and subjects that Phaedratha was heir-designate, it was holiday on Gedi Prime. The old baron had decreed a meridian-to-meridian rest from labor. and effort had been spent in the family city of Harko to create the illusion of gaiety. Banners flew from buildings, new paint had been splashed on the walls along Court Way. But off the main way, Count Fenring and his lady noted the rubbish heaps, the scabrous brown walls reflected in the dark puddles of the streets, and the furtive scurrying of the people. In the baron's blue-walled keep, there was fearful perfection. But the count and his lady saw the price being paid. Guards everywhere, and weapons with that special sheen that told a trained eye they were in regular use. There were checkpoints for routine passage from area to area, even within the keep. The servants revealed their military training in the way they walked, in the set of their shoulders, in the way their eyes watched and watched and watched. The pressure's on, the Count hummed to his lady in their secret language. The Baron is just beginning to see the price he really paid to rid himself of the Duke Leto. Sometime I must recount for you the legend of the Phoenix, she said. They were in the reception hall of the keep waiting to go to the family games. It was not a large hall, perhaps forty meters long and half that in width. But false pillars along the sides had been shaped with an abrupt taper, and the ceiling had a subtle arch, all giving the illusion of much greater space. Ah, here comes the Baron, the Count said. The Baron moved down the length of the hall with that peculiar waddling glide imparted by the necessities of guiding suspenser-hung weight. His jowls bobbed up and down. The suspensers jiggled and shifted beneath his orange robe. Rings glittered on his hands, and opifiers shone where they had been woven into the robe. At the baron's elbow walked Fade Rotha. His dark hair was dressed in close ringlets that seemed incongruously gay above sullen eyes. He wore a tight-fitting black tunic and snug trousers with a suggestion of bell at the bottom. Soft-soled slippers covered his small feet. Lady Fenring, noting the young man's poise and the sure flow of muscles beneath the tunic, thought, Here's one who won't let himself go to fat. The Baron stopped in front of them, took Fadrautha's arm in a possessive grip, said, My nephew, Renar Baron, Fadrautha Harkonnen. And turning his baby fat face toward Fadrautha, he said, the Count and Lady Fenring of whom I have spoken. Fadrautha dipped his head with the required courtesy. He stared at the Lady Fenring. She was golden-haired and willowy. Her perfection of figure clothed in a flowing gown of ecru, simple fitness of form without ornament. Grey-green eyes stared back at him. 
She had that Bene Gesserit serene repose about her that the young man found subtly disturbing. Um, um, said the Count. He studied Fade Rautha, the precise young man. Ah, my mm, dear. The Count glanced at the Baron. My dear Baron, you say you've spoken of us to this precise young man. What did you say? I told my nephew of the great esteem our Emperor holds for you, Count Fenring. The Baron said, and he thought, Mark him well, Fade. A killer with the manners of a rabbit. This is the most dangerous kind. Of course, said the Count, and he smiled at his lady. Fade Rautha found the man's actions and words almost insulting. They stopped just short of something overt that would require notice. The young man focused his attention on the Count, a small man, weak-looking. The face was weaselish with over-large dark eyes. There was grey at the temples, and his movements... He moved a hand or turned his head one way, then he spoke another way. It was difficult to follow. Um, um, you come upon such mm, preciseness so rarely, the Count said, addressing the Baron's shoulder. I uh, congratulate you on the mm, perfection of your uh, air. In the light of the mm, elder, one might say. You are too kind, the Baron said. He bowed, but Fade Rautha noted that his uncle's eyes did not agree with the courtesy. When you're um, ironic, that uh, suggests you're um, thinking deep thoughts, the Count said. There he goes again, Fade Rautha thought. It sounds like he's being insulting, but there's nothing you can call out for satisfaction. Listening to the man gave Fade Rautha the feeling his head was being pushed through mush. Mom. Fade Rautha turned his attention back to the Lady Fenring. We're uh, taking up too much of this young man's time, she said. I understand he's to appear in the arena today. By the huris of the Imperial Harim, she's a lovely one. Fade Rautha thought. He said... I shall make a kill for you this day, my lady. I shall make the dedication in the arena, with your permission. She returned his stare serenely, but her voice carried whiplash as she said, You do not have my permission. Fade, the baron said, and he thought, That imp, does he want this deadly count to call him out? But the count only smiled and said, Hmm... You really must be getting ready for the arena, Fade, the Baron said. You must be rested and not take any foolish risks. Fade Rautha bowed, his face dark with resentment. I am sure everything will be as you wish, Uncle. He nodded to Count Fenring. Sir, to the lady, my lady. And he turned, strode out of the hall barely glancing at the knot of families minor near the double doors. He's so young, the Baron sighed. Um, I indeed, 
the Count said. And the Lady Fenring thought, Can that be the young man the Reverend Mother meant? Is that a bloodline we must preserve? We've more than an hour before going to the arena, the Baron said. Perhaps we could have our little talk now, Count Fenring. He tipped his gross head to the right. There's a considerable amount of progress to be discussed. And the Baron thought, Let us see now how the Emperor's errand boy gets across whatever message he carries without ever being so crass as to speak it right out. The Count spoke to his lady. Um, uh, you will uh, excuse us, my dear. Each day, some time each hour brings change, she said. <laughs> and she smiled sweetly at the Baron before turning away. Her long skirts swished, and she walked with a straight-backed, regal stride toward the double doors at the end of the hall. The Baron noted how all conversation among the houses minor there stopped at her approach. How the eyes followed her. Benet the Baron thought. The universe would be better rid of them all. There's a cone of silence between two of the pillars over here on our left, the Baron said. We can't talk there without fear of being overheard. He led the way with his waddling gait into the sound-deadening field, feeling the noises of the keep become dull and distant. The Count moved up beside the Baron, and they turned, facing the wall so their lips could not be read. We're not satisfied with the way you ordered the Sardukar off Arrakis, the Count said. Straight talk, the Baron thought. The Sardukar could not stay longer without risking that others would find out how the Emperor helped me, the Baron said. But your nephew, Raban, does not appear to be pressing strongly enough toward a solution of the Fremen problem. What does the Emperor wish? The Baron asked. There cannot be more than a handful of Fremen left on Arrakis. The southern desert is uninhabitable. The northern desert is swept regularly by our patrols. Who says the southern desert is uninhabitable? Your own planetologist said it, my dear Count. But Dr. Kynes is dead. Ah, yes. Unfortunate, that. We've word from an overflight across the southern reaches, the Count said. There's evidence of plant life. Has the Guild then agreed to a watch from space? You know better than that, Baron. The Emperor cannot legally post a watch on Arrakis. And I cannot afford it, the Baron said. Who made this overflight? A smuggler. Someone has lied to you, Count, the Baron said. Smugglers cannot navigate the southern reaches any better than can Raban's men. Storms, sand, static, and all that, you know. Navigation markers are knocked out faster than they can be installed. We'll discuss various types of static another time, the Count said. Ah, 
the Baron thought. Have you found some mistake in my accounting, then? He demanded. When you imagine mistakes, there can be no self-defense, the Count said. He's deliberately trying to arouse my anger, the Baron thought. He took two deep breaths to calm himself. He could smell his own sweat, and the harness of the suspensors beneath his robe felt suddenly itchy and galling. The Emperor cannot be unhappy about the death of the concubine and the boy, the Baron said. They fled into the desert. There was a storm. Yes, there were so many convenient accidents, the Count agreed. I do not like your tone, Count, the Baron said. Anger is one thing, violence another, the Count said. Let me caution you. Should an unfortunate accident occur to me here, the great houses all would learn what you did on Arrakis. They've long suspected how you do business. The only recent business I can recall, the Baron said, was transportation of several legions of Sardaukar to Arrakis. You think you could hold that over the Emperor's head? I wouldn't think of it. The Count smiled. Sardaukar commanders could be found who'd confess they acted without orders because they wanted a battle with your Fremen scum. Many might doubt such a confession, the Baron said, but the threat staggered him. Are Sardaukar truly that disciplined, he wondered. The Emperor does wish to audit your books, the Count said. Any time. You uh, have no objections? None. My charm company directorship will bear the closest scrutiny. And he thought, let him bring a false accusation against me and have it exposed. I shall stand there, Promethean, saying, behold me, I am wronged. Then let him bring any other accusation against me, even a true one. The great houses will not believe a second attack from an accuser once proved wrong. No doubt your books will bear the closest scrutiny, the Count muttered. Why is the Emperor so interested in exterminating the Fremen? the Baron asked. You wish the subject to be changed, eh? the Count shrugged. It is the Sardaukar who wish it, not the Emperor. They needed practice in killing, and they hate to see a task left undone. Does he think to frighten me by reminding me that he is supported by bloodthirsty killers? The Baron wondered. A certain amount of killing has always been an arm of business, the Baron said. But a line has to be drawn somewhere. Someone must be left to work the spice. The Count emitted a short, barking laugh. You think you can harness the Fremen? There never were enough of them for that, the Baron said. But the killing has made the rest of my population uneasy. 
It's reaching the point where I'm considering another solution to the Arakin problem, my dear Fenry. And I must confess the Emperor deserves credit for the inspiration. Ah? Uh-huh. You see, Count, I have the Emperor's prison planet, Salusa Secundus, to inspire me. The Count stared at him with glittering intensity. What possible connection is there between Arrakis and Salusa Secundus? The Baron felt the alertness in Fenring's eyes, said, No connection yet. Yet? You must admit it'd be a way to develop a substantial workforce on Arrakis. Use the place as a prison planet. You anticipate an increase in prisoners? There has been unrest, the Baron admitted. I've had to squeeze rather severely, Fenring. After all, you know the price I paid that damnable guild to transport our mutual force to Arrakis. That money has to come from somewhere. I suggest you not use Arrakis as a prison planet without the Emperor's permission, Baron. Of course not, the Baron said, and he wondered at the sudden chill in Fenring's voice. Another matter, the Count said. We learned that Duke Leto's mentat, Thufir Hawat, is not dead but in your employ. I could not bring myself to waste him, the Baron said. You lied to our Sarduka commander when you said Hawat was dead. Only a white lie, my dear Count. I hadn't the stomach for a long argument with the man. Was Hawat the real traitor? Oh, goodness, no. It was the false doctor. The Baron wiped at perspiration on his neck. You must understand, Fenring, I was without a mentat. You know that. I've never been without a mentat. It was most unsettling. How could you get Howard to shift allegiance? His duke was dead. The Baron forced a smile. There's nothing to fear from Howard, my dear Count. The Mentat's flesh has been impregnated with a latent poison. We administer an antidote in his meals. Without the antidote, the poison is triggered. He'd die in a few days. Withdraw the antidote, the Count said. But he's useful. And he knows too many things no living man should know. You said the Emperor doesn't fear exposure. Don't play games with me, Baron. When I see such an order above the Imperial Seal, I'll obey it, the Baron said. But I'll not submit to your whim. You think it whim? What else can it be? The Emperor has obligations to me too, Fenring. I rid him of the troublesome Duke. With the help of a few Sardaukar. Where else would the Emperor have found a house to provide the disguising uniforms to hide his hand in this matter? He has asked himself the same question, Baron, but with a slightly different emphasis. The Baron studied Fenring, noting the stiffness of jaw muscles, the careful control. Ah, now, 
the Baron said, I hope the Emperor doesn't believe he can move against me in total secrecy. He hopes it won't become necessary. The Emperor cannot believe I threaten him. The Baron permitted anger and grief to edge his voice, thinking, let him wrong me in that. I could place myself on the throne while still beating my breast over how I'd been wronged. The Count's voice went dry and remote as he said, the Emperor believes what his senses tell him. Dare the Emperor charge me with treason before a full Landstrad Council? And the Baron held his breath with the hope of it. The Emperor need dare nothing. The Baron whirled away in his suspenses to hide his expression. It could happen in my lifetime, he thought. Emperor, let him wrong me. Then the bribes and coercion, the rallying of the great houses, they'd flock to my banner like peasants running for shelter. The thing they fear above all else is the Emperor's Sardaukar loosed upon them one house at a time. It's the Emperor's sincere hope he'll never have to charge you with treason, the Count said. The Baron found it difficult to keep irony out of his voice and permit only the expression of hurt, but he managed. I've been a most loyal subject. These words hurt me beyond my capacity to express. Um, um, said the Count. The Baron kept his back to the Count, nodding. Presently he said, It's time to go to the arena. Indeed, said the Count. They moved out of the cone of silence and side by side walked toward the clumps of houses minor at the end of the hall. A bell began a slow tolling somewhere in the keep, twenty-minute warning for the arena gathering. The houses minor wait for you to lead them, the Count said, nodding toward the people they approached. Double meaning, double meaning, the Baron thought. He looked up at the new talismans flanking the exit to his hall. The mounted bull's head and the oil painting of the old Duke Atreides, the late Duke Leto's father. They filled the Baron with an odd sense of foreboding. And he wondered what thoughts these talismans had inspired in the Duke Leto as they hung in the halls of Caledon, and then on Arrakis, the bravura father and the head of the bull that had killed him. Mankind has uh, only one science, the Count said as they picked up their parade of followers and emerged from the hall into the waiting room, a narrow space with high windows and floor of patterned white and purple tile. And what science is that? the Baron asked. It's the um, uh, science of uh, discontent, the Count said. The houses minor behind them, sheep-faced and responsive, laughed with just the right tone of appreciation. But the sound carried a note of discord as it collided with the sudden blast of motors that came to them when pages threw open the outer doors, revealing the line of ground cars, their guide on pennants whipping in a breeze. The Baron raised his voice to surmount the sudden noise, said, I hope you'll not be discontented with the performance of my nephew today, Count Fenring. I, uh, am filled, um, only with a um, 
sense of anticipation, yes, the Count said. Always in the, uh, process verbal, one, um, uh, must consider the, uh, office of origin. The Baron did his sudden stiffening of surprise by stumbling on the first step down from the exit. Process verbal. That was a report of a crime against the Imperium. But the Count chuckled to make it seem a joke and patted the Baron's arm. All the way to the arena, though, the Baron sat back among the armored cushions of his car, casting covert glances at the Count beside him, wondering why the Emperor's errand boy had thought it necessary to make that particular kind of joke in front of the house's minor. It was obvious that Fenring seldom did anything he felt to be unnecessary, or used two words where one would do, or held himself to a single meaning in a single phrase. They were seated in the golden box above the triangular arena, horns blaring, the tears above and around them jammed with a hubbub of people and waving pennants when the answer came to the Baron. My dear Baron, the Count said, leaning close to his ear, you know, don't you, that the Emperor has not given official sanction to your choice of heir. The Baron felt himself to be within a sudden personal cone of silence produced by his own shock. He stared at Fenring, barely seeing the Count's lady come through the guards beyond to join the party in the Golden Box. That's really why I'm here today, the Count said. The Emperor wishes me to report on whether you've chosen a worthy successor. There's nothing like the arena to expose the true person from beneath the mask, eh? The Emperor promised me free choice of air, the Baron grated. We shall see, Fenring said, and turned away to greet his lady. She sat down, smiling at the Baron, then giving her attention to the sand floor beneath them, where Fade Ratha was emerging in guiles and tights. The black glove and the long knife in his right hand, the white glove and the short knife in his left hand. White for poison, black for purity, the Lady Fenring said. A curious custom, isn't it, my love? Um, the Count said. The greeting cheer lifted from the family galleries, and Fade Rautha paused to accept it, looking up and scanning the faces, seeing his cousines and cousins, the demi-brothers, the concubines, and outfrain relations. There were so many pink trumpet mouths yammering amidst a flutter of colorful clothing and banners. It came to Fade Rautha then, that the packed ranks of faces would look just as avidly at his blood as at that of the slave gladiator. There was not a doubt of the outcome in this fight, of course. Here was only the form of danger without its substance. Yet, Fade Rafa held up his knives to the sun, saluted the three corners of the arena in the ancient manner. The short knife in white-gloved hand, white the sign of poison, went first into its sheath. Then the long blade in the black-gloved hand, the pure blade that now was unpure, his secret weapon to turn this day into a purely personal victory. Poison on the black blade. The adjustment of his body shield took only a moment. 
and he paused to sense the skin tightening at his forehead, assuring him he was properly guarded. This moment carried its own suspense, and Vedratha dragged it out with the sure hand of a showman, nodding to his handlers and distractors, checking their equipment with a measuring stare. Jives in place with their prickles sharp and glistening, the barbs and hooks waving with their blue streamers. Phaedratha signaled the musicians. The slow march began, sonorous with its ancient pomp, and Phaedratha led his troop across the arena for obeisance at the foot of his uncle's box. He caught the ceremonial key as it was thrown. The music stopped. Into the abrupt silence, he stepped back two paces, raised the key and shouted, I dedicate this truth to... And he paused, knowing his uncle would think, The young fool's going to dedicate to Lady Fenring after all and cause a ruckus. To my uncle and patron, the Baron Vladimir Harkonnen, Fedratha shouted. And he was delighted to see his uncle sigh. The music resumed at the quick march, and Fedratha led his men scampering back across the arena to the prudence door that admitted only those wearing the proper identification band. Fedratha prided himself that he never used the prude door and seldom needed distractors. But it was good to know they were available this day. Special plans sometimes involved special dangers. Again, silence settled over the arena. Fedratha turned, faced the big red door across from him through which the gladiator would emerge. The special gladiator. This ends Disc 13. This 13 that Yeah 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 This 13, like what? Come on, more spice. I need more spice. Shouts out to everybody locked in. How you all feeling? How's everybody feeling out there? Intermission time, baby. You've got time to go and urinate. And then we're going back in with round two. Double boo! Double boo! Go get some popcorn. Be quick, though.
Yo, shout out to everybody locked in. Uh, thank you, Bob Fishman, for the support. Appreciate you, baby. Man like Bob Fishman with a super chat. Pyam, pyam. Appreciate you. Yo, what up, motherfucker? Stuff. Forklift gang. Forklift gang. Alex Burian says, hey guys, are there any codes for merch? What, you want a discount? Hmm, let me just go ask wife if there are any codes. Good news. There's a discount code for Dune Club people. Special discount code for Dune Club attendees. Uh, if you type in Dune 10 at checkout, you get 10% off of your order at MeaningWave.com. By Jove. Uh, Sedonica said, I got Jordan Peterson pants for free. Did you? Life is good. That's very nice. God bless. Alex uh, Boroyan says, I want the velvet hoodie. Now I mean, which one? Man, the the oh, the the uh, the velvet pants are so good, baby. The velvet pants are so good. There is nothing more uh, cozy to wear than Dune. Sorry, than uh, velvet pants. Wifey just did a thumbs up. So the co- is it lowercase or capital? All right, there you go. Your code is in uppercase, baby. Uppercase Dune ten for ten percent off. Meaningwave.com uh, at checkout. Uh, because you asked so nicely. <laughs> Ask and thou shall receive by Jove. Yeah. All right, boom, shit. Let's do it. Let's go back in. Let's go back in. Who wants to go back in? Uh-oh, uh-oh. Shit. I've run out of disk space again. Better sort that out before we go back in. Uh, Alex, you're going to have to get the download from uh, YouTube because I've run out of disk space again. I'm going to have to do something about that. What am I going to do about that? Hold tight, hold tight. I'm uh, just stopping the computer from crashing. Um, I feel like I did this like a week ago. A week ago, I feel I was stopping the computer from crashing. And uh, here we are again. Don is going against time. Uh, removing downloads from the hard drive. Smart sync online only. Thanks very much. Thanks. <sighs> saved. I think. I think we saved. 
All righty. All righty then, baby. Dooby dooby dooby. Let's get it. Let's get it. MXMLLN said, let's get a desktop computer. Are you running everything from a laptop? No. No, we're not running everything from a laptop. I have a dedicated streaming machine uh, doing just the streaming. And uh, it's a beautiful machine. It's called the Wigulator. As you can tell, it's very powerful. It can do lots of cool stuff. Anyway, let's go back in, shall we? Dune! <laughs> The plan Thufir Howard had devised was admirably simple and direct, Fade thought. The slave would not be drugged. That was the danger. Instead, a key word had been drummed into the man's unconscious to immobilize his muscles at a critical instant. Fade rolled the vital word in his mind, mouthing it without sound. Scum. To the audience, it would appear that an undrugged slave had been slipped into the arena to kill Dinar Baron. And all the carefully arranged evidence would point to the slave master. A low humming arose from the Red Door's servo motors as they were armed for opening. Fadrotha focused all his awareness on the door. This first moment was the critical one. The appearance of the gladiator as he emerged told the trained eye much it needed to know. All gladiators were supposed to be hyped on Ilaka drug to come out kill-ready in fighting stance. But you had to watch how they hefted the knife, which way they turned in defense, whether they were actually aware of the audience in the stands. The way a slave cocked his head could give the most vital clue to counter and feint. The red door slammed open, outcharged a tall, muscular man with shaved head and darkly pitted eyes. His skin was carrot-colored, as it should be from the Alaka drug, but Fadratha knew the color was paint. The slave wore green leotards and the red belt of a semi-shield, the belt's arrow pointing left to indicate the slave's left side was shielded. He held his knife sword-fashion, cocked slightly outward in the stance of a trained fighter. Slowly he advanced into the arena, turning his shielded side toward Fadratha and the group at the proof door. I like not the look of this one, said one of Fadrotha's barbed men. Are you sure he's drugged, my lord? He has the color, Fadrotha said. Yet he stands like a fighter, said another helper. Fadrotha advanced two steps onto the sand, studied the slave. What has he done to his arm? asked one of the distractors. Fadrotha's attention went to a bloody scratch on the man's left forearm, followed the arm down to the hand as it pointed to a design drawn in blood on the left hip of the green leotards. A wet shape there. The formalized outline of a hawk. Hawk. 
Fade Rother looked up into the darkly pitted eyes, saw them glaring at him with uncommon alertness. It's one of Duke Leho's fighting men we took on Arrakis, Fade Rother thought. No simple gladiator, this. A chill ran through him, and he wondered if Howard had another plan for this arena. A feint within a feint within a feint. And only the slave master prepared to take the blame. Fade Rautha's chief handler spoke at his ear. I like not the look on that one, my lord. Let me set a barb or two in his knife arm to try him. I'll set my own barbs, Fade Rautha said. He took a pair of the long, hooked shafts from the handler, hefted them, testing the balance. These barbs, too, were supposed to be drugged, but not this time, and the chief handler might die because of that, but it was all part of the plan. You'll come out of this a hero, Howard had said. Killed your gladiator man to man, and in spite of treachery, the slave master will be executed and your man will step into his spot. Fade Rautha advanced another five paces into the arena, playing out the moment, studying the slave. Already he knew the experts in the stands above him were aware that something was wrong. The gladiator had the correct skin color for a drugged man, but he stood his ground and did not tremble. The aficionados would be whispering among themselves now. See how he stands, he should be agitated, attacking or retreating. See how he conserves his strength, how he waits. He should not wait. Fade felt his own excitement kindle. Let there be treachery in Howard's mind, he thought. I can handle the slave. And it's my long knife that carries the poison this time, not the short one. Even Howard doesn't know that. Hi, Harkonnen. The slave called. Are you prepared to die? Deathly stillness gripped the arena. Slaves did not issue the challenge. Now, Fade Rautha had a clear view of the gladiator's eyes, saw the cold ferocity of despair in them. He marked the way the man stood, loose and ready, muscles prepared for victory. The slave Grapevine had carried Howard's message to this one. You'll get a true chance to kill the Na Baron. That much of the scheme was as they'd planned it then. A tight smile crossed Fade Rautha's mouth. He lifted the barbs, seeing success for his plans in the way the gladiator stood. Hi, hi, the slave challenged and crept forward two steps. No one in the galleries can mistake it now, Fade Rautha thought. This slave should have been partly crippled by drug-induced terror. Every movement should have betrayed his inner knowledge that there was no hope for him. He could not win. He should have been filled with the stories of the poisons the Nabaran chose for the blade in his white-gloved hand. The Nabaran never gave quick death. He delighted in demonstrating rare poisons, could stand in the arena pointing out interesting side effects on a writhing victim. There was fear in the slave, yes, but not terror. Fade Rather lifted the barbs high, nodded in an almost greeting. The gladiator pounced. His faint and defensive counter were as good as any Fade Rather had ever seen. A timed side blow missed by the barest fraction from severing the tendons of the Nabaran's left leg. Fade Rather danced away, leaving a barbed shaft in the slave's right forearm, the hooks completely buried in flesh where the man could not withdraw them without ripping tendons. A concerted gasp lifted from the galleries. The sound filled Fade Rautha with elation. 
He knew now what his uncle was experiencing, sitting up there with the Fenrings, the observers from the Imperial Court beside him. There could be no interference with this fight. The forms must be observed in front of witnesses. And the Baron would interpret the events in the arena only one way. Threat to himself. The slave backed, holding knife and teeth and lashing the barbed shaft to his arm with the pennant. I do not feel your needle, he shouted. Again he crept forward, knife ready, left side presented, his body bent backward to give it the greatest surface of protection from the half-shield. That action too didn't escape the galleries. Sharp cries came from the family boxes. Fadrauth's handlers were calling out to ask if he needed them. He waved them back to the crew door. I'll give them a show such as they've never had before, Fadrauther thought. No tame killing where they can sit back and admire the style. This will be something to take them by the guts and twist them. When I'm barren, they'll remember this day and won't be a one of them can escape fear of me because of this day. Fade Rafa gave ground slowly before the gladiator's crab-like advance. Arena sand grated underfoot. He heard the slaves panting, smelled his own sweat and a faint odor of blood on the air. Steadily, the Nabaran moved backward, turning to the right, his second barb ready. The slave danced sideways. Fade Rautha appeared to stumble, heard the scream from the galleries. Again, the slave pounced. Gods, what a fighting man, Fade Rautha thought as he leaped aside. Only youth's quickness saved him, but he left the second barb buried in the deltoid muscle of the slave's right arm. Shrill cheers rained from the galleries. They cheer me now, Fade Rautha thought. He heard the wildness in the voices, just as Howard had said he would. They'd never cheered a family fighter that way before. And he thought with an edge of grimness on a thing Howard had told him, it's easier to be terrified by an enemy you admire. Swiftly, Fade Rather retreated to the center of the arena, where all could see clearly. He drew his long blade, crouched, and waited for the advancing slave. The man took only the time to lash the second barb tight to his arm, then sped in pursuit. Let the family see me do this thing, Fadrather thought. I am their enemy. Let them think of me as they see me now. He drew his short blade. I do not fear you, Harkonnen swine, the gladiator said. Your tortures cannot hurt a dead man. I can be dead on my own blade before a handler lays finger to my flesh, and I'll have you dead beside me. Rafa grinned, offered now the long blade, the one with the poison. Try this on, he said, and fainted with the short blade in his other hand. The slave shifted knife hands, turned inside both parry and feint to grapple the Nabaran's short blade, the one in the white-gloved hand that tradition said should carry the poison. You will die, Harkonnen, the gladiator gasped. They struggled sideways across the sand. Where Fade Rautha's shield met the slave's half-shield, a blue glow marked the contact, the air around them filled with ozone from the field. Die on your own poison, the slave grated. He began forcing the white-gloved hand inward, turning the blade he thought carried the poison. Let them see this, Fade Rautha thought. He brought down the long blade, felt it clang uselessly against the barbed shaft lashed to the slave's arm. Fade Rautha felt a moment of desperation. He hadn't thought the barbed shafts would be an advantage for the slave, but they gave the man another shield. And the strength of this gladiator, 
The short blade was being forced inward inexorably, and Fade Rautha focused on the fact that a man could also die on an unpoisoned blade. Scum, Fade Rautha gasped. At the key word, the gladiator's muscles obeyed with a momentary slackness. It was enough for Fade Rautha. He opened a space between them sufficient for the long blade. Its poison tip flicked out, drew a red line down the slave's chest. There was instant agony in the poison. The man disengaged himself, staggered backward. Now let my dear family watch, Fade Rautha thought. Let them think on this slave who tried to turn the knife he thought poisoned and use it against me. Let them wonder how a gladiator could come into this arena ready for such an attempt. And let them always be aware they cannot know for sure which of my hands carries the poison. Fade Rautha stood in silence, watching the slowed motions of the slave. The man moved within a hesitation awareness. There was an orthographic thing on his face now for every watcher to recognize. The death was written there. The slave knew it had been done to him, and he knew how it had been done. The wrong blade had carried the poison. You, the man moaned. Fadrotha drew back to give death its space. The paralyzing drug in the poison had yet to take full effect, but the man's slowness told of its advance. The slave staggered forward as though drawn by a string, one dragging step at a time. Each step was the only step in his universe. He still clutched his knife, but its point wavered. One day, one of us will get you, he gasped. A sad little moo contorted his mouth. He sat, sagged, then stiffened and rolled away from Fade Rafa, face down. Fade Rafa advanced in the silent arena, put a toe under the gladiator, and rolled him onto his back to give the galleries a clear view of the face when the poison began its twisting, wrenching work on the muscles. But the gladiator came over with his own knife protruding from his breast. In spite of frustration, there was for Fade Rafa a measure of admiration for the effort this slave had managed in overcoming the paralysis to do this thing to himself. With the admiration came the realization that here was truly a thing to fear. That which makes a man superhuman is terrifying. As he focused on this thought, Fade Rautha became conscious of the eruption of noise from the stands and galleries around him. They were cheering with utter abandon. Fade Rautha turned, looking up at them. All were cheering except the Baron, who sat with hand to chin in deep contemplation. And the Count and his lady, both of whom were staring down at him, their faces masked by smiles. Count Fenring turned to his lady, said, Ah, oh, a resourceful mm, young man, eh? Mm, uh, my dear. His uh, synaptic responses are very swift, she said. The Baron looked at her, at the Count, but turned his attention to the arena, thinking, if someone could get that close to one of mine. Rage began to replace his fear. 
I'll have the slave master dead over a slow fire this night. And if this count and his lady had a hand in it... The conversation in the Baron's box was remote movement to Fadrotha, the voices drowned in the foot-stamping chant that came now from all around. Head! 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 The Baron scowled, seeing the way Fadrotha turned to him. Languidly, controlling his rage with difficulty, the Baron waved his hand toward the young man standing in the arena beside the sprawled body of the slave. Give the boy a head. He earned it by exposing the slave master. Fade Rather saw the signal of agreement, thought, They think they honor me. Let them see what I think. He saw his handlers approaching with a saw knife to do the honors, waved them back, repeated the gesture as they hesitated. They think they honor me with just a head, he thought. He bent and crossed the gladiator's hands around the protruding knife handle, then removed the knife and placed it in the limp hands. It was done in an instant, and he straightened, beckoned his handlers, Bury this slave intact with his knife in his hands, he said. The man earned it. In the golden box, Count Fenring leaned close to the baron, said, A grand gesture, that true bravura. Your nephew has style as well as courage. He insults the crowd by refusing their head, the baron muttered. Not at all, Lady Fenring said. She turned, looking up at the tears around them. And the baron noted the line of her neck, a truly lovely flowing of muscles, like a young boy's. They like what your nephew did, she said. As the import of Fade Rother's gesture penetrated to the most distant seats, as the people saw the handlers carrying off the dead gladiator intact, the Baron watched them and realized she had interpreted the reaction correctly. The people were going wild, beating on each other, screaming and stamping. The Baron spoke wearily. I shall have to order a fete. You cannot send people home like this, their energies unspent. They must see that I share their elation. He gave a hand signal to his guard, and a servant above them dipped the Harkonnen orange pennant over the box once, twice, three times, signal for effect. Fadrother crossed the arena to stand beneath the golden box, his weapons sheathed, arms hanging at his sides, Above the undiminished frenzy of the crowd, he called, A fete, uncle? The noise began to subside as people saw the conversation and waited. In your honor, Fade, the baron called down. And again he caused the pennant to be dipped in signal. Across the arena, the Prue barriers had been dropped, and young men were leaping down into the arena, racing toward Fade Rafa. You ordered the Prue shields dropped, Baron? The Count asked. No one will harm the lad, the Baron said. He's a hero. The first of the charging mass reached Fade Rotha, lifted him on their shoulders, began parading around the arena. He could walk unarmed and unshielded through the poorest quarters of Harko tonight, the Baron said. 
they'd give him the last of their food and drink, just for his company. The Baron pushed himself from his chair, settled his weight into his suspensers. You will forgive me, please. There are matters that require my immediate attention. The guard will see you to the keep. The Count arose, bowed. Certainly, Baron, we're looking forward to the fete. I've, uh, mm, never seen a Harkonnen fete. Yes, the Baron said. The fete. He turned, was enveloped by guards as he stepped into the private exit from the box. A guard captain bowed to Count Fenring. Your orders, my lord? We will, uh, wait for the worst mm, crush to, um, pass, the Count said. Yes, my lord. The man bowed himself back three paces. Count Fenring faced his lady, spoke again in their personal humming code tongue. You saw it, of course? In the same humming tongue, she said, the lad knew the gladiator wouldn't be drugged. There was a moment of fear, yes, but no surprise. It was planned, he said, the entire performance. Without a doubt, it stinks of Hawat. Indeed, she said. I demanded earlier that the Baron eliminate Hawat. That was an error, my dear. I see that now. The Harkonnens may have a new Baron ere long, if that's Hawat's plan. That will bear examination. True, she said. The young one will be more amenable to control. For us, after tonight, she said. You don't anticipate difficulty seducing him, my little brood mother? No, my love. You saw how he looked at me. Yes, and I can see now why we must have that bloodline. Indeed, and it's obvious we must have a hold on him. I'll plant deep in his deepest self the necessary prana-bindu phrases to bend him. We'll leave as soon as possible, as soon as you're sure, he said. She shuddered. By all means, I should not want to bear a child in this terrible place. The things we do in the name of humanity, he said. Yours is the easy part, she said. There are some ancient prejudices I overcome, he said. They're quite primordial, you know. My poor dear, she said, and patted his cheek. You know this is the only way to be sure of saving that bloodline. He spoke in a dry voice. I quite understand what we do. We won't fail, she said. Guilt starts as a feeling of failure, he reminded There'll be no guilt, she said. Hypnoligation of that Fadrauther psyche, and his child in my womb, then we go. That uncle, he said. Have you ever seen such distortion? He's pretty fierce, she said. But the nephew could well grow to be worse, thanks to that uncle. You know, when you think that this lad could have been with some other upbringing, with the Atreides code to guide him, for example. It's sad, she said. Would that we could have saved both the Atreides youth and this one. From what I heard of that young Paul, a most admirable lad, good union of breeding and training. He shook his head. But we shouldn't waste sorrow. 
over the aristocracy of misfortune. There's a Bene Gesserit saying, she said. You have sayings for everything, he protested. You'll like this one, she said. It goes, do not count a human dead until you've seen his body. And even then you can make a mistake. Muad'Dib tells us in A Time of Reflection that his first collisions with Arakeen necessities were the true beginnings of his education. He learned then how to pull the sand for its weather, learned the language of the wind's needles stinging his skin, learned how the nose can buzz with sand itch, and how to gather his body's precious moisture around him to guard it and preserve it. As his eyes assumed the blue of the Ibad, he learned the Chakobsa way, Stilgar's preface to Muad'Dib, the man, by the princess Irulan. Stilgar's troop, returning to the Sietch with its two strays from the desert, climbed out of the basin in the waning light of the first moon. The robed figures hurried with the smell of home in their nostrils. Dawn's gray line behind them was brightest at the notch in their horizon calendar that marked the middle of autumn, the month of Keprak. Wind-raked dead leaves strewed the cliff base where the Sietch children had been gathering them, but the sounds of the troops' passage, except for occasional blunderings by Paul and his mother, could not be distinguished from the natural sounds of the night. Paul wiped sweat-caked dust from his forehead, felt a tug at his arm, heard Chani's voice hissing, Do as I told you. Bring the fold of your hood down over your forehead. Leave only the eyes exposed. You waste moisture. A whispered command behind them demanded silence. The desert hears you. A bird chirruped from the rocks high above them. The troop stopped, and Paul sensed abrupt tension. There came a faint thumping from the rocks, a sound no louder than mice jumping in the sand. Again the bird chirruped. A stir passed through the troop's ranks. And again the mouse thumping pecked its way across the sand. Once more the bird chirruped. The troop resumed its climb up into a crack in the rocks, but there was a stillness of breath about the Fremen now that filled Paul with caution. And he noted covert glances toward Chani, the way she seemed to withdraw, pulling in upon herself. There was rock underfoot now, a faint grey swishing of robes around them, and Paul sensed a relaxing of discipline, but still that quiet of the person about Chani and the others. He followed a shadow shape, up steps, a turn, more steps, into a tunnel, past two moisture-sealed doors, and into a globe-lighted narrow passage with yellow rock walls and ceiling. All around him, Paul saw the Fremen throwing back their hoods, removing nose plugs, breathing deeply. Someone sighed. Paul looked for Chani, found that she had left his side. He was hemmed in by a press of robed bodies. Someone jostled him, said, Excuse me, Usul. What a crush, it's always this way. On his left, the narrow, bearded face of the one called Farrakh turned toward Paul. The stained eye pits and blue darkness of eyes appeared even darker under the yellow globes. Throw off your hood, Usul, Farrakh said. You're home. And he helped Paul, releasing the hood catch, elbowing a space around them. Paul slipped out his nose plugs, swung the mouth baffle aside. The odor of the place assailed him. 
unwashed bodies. Distillate esters of reclaimed wastes, everywhere the sour effluvia of humanity, with, over it all, a turbulence of spice and spice-like harmonics. Why are we waiting, Farrokh? Paul asked. For the Reverend Mother, I think. You heard the message? Poor Chani. Poor Chani? Paul asked himself. He looked around, wondering where she was, where his mother had got to in all this crush. Farrakh took a deep breath. The smells of home, he said. Paul saw that the man was enjoying the stink of this air, that there was no irony in his tone. He heard his mother cough then, and her voice came back to him through the press of the troop. How rich the odors of your siege still are. I see you do much working with the spice. You make paper, plastics, and isn't that chemical explosives? You know this from what you smell? It was another man's voice. And Paul realized she was speaking for his benefit, that she wanted him to make a quick acceptance of this assault on his nostrils. There came a buzz of activity at the head of the troop, and a prolonged, indrawn breath that seemed to pass through the Fremen, and Paul heard hushed voices back down the line. It's true, then. Liet is dead. Liet, Paul thought. Then Chani, daughter of Liet. The pieces fell together in his mind. Liet was the Fremen name of the planetologist. Paul looked at Farrakh, asked, Is it the Liet known as Kynes? There is only one Liet, Farrakh said. Paul turned, stared at the robed back of a Fremen in front of him. Then Liet Kynes is dead, he thought. It was Harkonnen treachery, someone hissed. They made it seem an accident, lost in the desert. A thopter crash. Paul felt a burst of anger. The man who had befriended them, helped save them from the Harkonnen hunters, the man who had sent his Fremen cohorts searching for two strays in the desert, another victim of the Harkonnens. Does Usul hunger yet for revenge? Farrakh asked. Before Paul could answer, there came a low call, and the troops swept forward into a wider chamber, carrying Paul with him. He found himself in an open space confronted by Stilgar and a strange woman wearing a flowing wraparound garment of brilliant orange and green. Her arms were bare to the shoulders, and he could see she wore no stillsuit. Her skin was a pale olive. Dark hair swept back from her high forehead, throwing emphasis on sharp cheekbones and aquiline nose between the dense darkness of her eyes. She turned toward him, and Paul saw golden rings threaded with water tallies dangling from her ears. This bested my Jameis? she demanded. Be silent, Hara, Stilgar said. It was Jameis's doing. He invoked the Tahadi al-Burhan. He's not but a boy, she said. She gave her head a sharp shake from side to side, setting the water tallies to jingling. My children made fatherless by another child? Surely it was an accident. Uso, how many years have you? Stilgar asked. Fifteen standard, Paul said. Stilgar swept his eyes over the troop. Is there one among you cares to challenge me? Silence. 
Stilgar looked at the woman. Until I've learned his weirding ways, I'd not challenge him. She returned his stare. But you saw the stranger woman who went with Chani to the Reverend Mother? Stilgar asked. She's an outfrain Seadina, mother to this lad. The mother and son are masters of the weirding ways of battle. Lisan al-Kaib, the woman whispered. Her eyes held awe as she turned them back toward Paul. The legend again, Paul thought. Perhaps, Stilgar said. It hasn't been tested, though. He returned his attention to Paul. Usul, it's our way that you've now the responsibility for Jameis's woman here and for his two sons. His yali, his quarters are yours. His coffee service is yours. And this, his woman. Paul studied the woman, wondering, why isn't she mourning her man? Why does she show no hate for me? Abruptly, he saw that the Fremen were staring at him, waiting. Someone whispered, There's work to do. Say how you accept her. Stilgar said, Do you accept Hara as woman or servant? Hara lifted her arms, turning slowly on one heel. I am still young, Uthul. It said I still look as young as when I was with Jaff, before Jameis bested him. Jameis killed another to win her, Paul thought. Paul said, If I accept her as servant, may I yet change my mind at a later time? You'd have a year to change your decision, Stilgar said. After that, she's a free woman to choose as she wishes. Or you could free her to choose for herself at any time. But she's your responsibility, no matter what, for one year. And you'll always share some responsibility for the sons of Jameis. I accept her as servant, Paul said. Hara stamped a foot, shook her shoulders with anger. But I'm young! Stilgar looked at Paul, said, Caution's a worthy trait in a man who would lead. But I'm young, Hara repeated. Be silent, Stilgar commanded. If a thing has merit, it'll be. Show Usul to his quarters and see he has fresh clothing and a place to rest. Oh, she said. Paul had registered enough of her to have a first approximation. He felt the impatience of the troop, knew many things were being delayed here. He wondered if he dared ask the whereabouts of his mother and Chani, saw from Stilgar's nervous stance that it would be a mistake. He faced Hara, pitched his voice with tone and tremolo to accent her fear and awe, said, Show me my quarters, Hara. We will discuss your youth another time. She backed away two steps, cast a frightened glance at Stilgar. He has the weirding voice, she husked. Stilgar, Paul said. Chani's father put heavy obligation on me. If there's anything... It'll be decided in council, Stilgar said. You can speak then. He nodded in dismissal, turned away with the rest of the troop following him. Paul took Hara's arm, noting how cool her flesh seemed, feeling her tremble. I'll not harm you, Hara, he said. Show me our quarters. And he smoothed his voice with relaxance. You'll not cast me out when the year's gone, she said. I know for true I'm not as young as once I was. As long as I live, you'll have a place with me, he said. He released her arm. Come now, where are our quarters? 
turned, led the way down the passage, turning right into a wide cross-tunnel lighted by evenly spaced yellow overhead globes. The stone floor was smooth, swept clean of sand. Paul moved up beside her, studied the aquiline profile as they walked. You do not hate me, Farah? Why should I hate you? She nodded to a cluster of children who stared at them from the raised ledge of a side passage. Paul glimpsed adult shapes behind the children, partly hidden by filmy hangings. I bested Jamis. Stilgar said the ceremony was held and you're a friend of Jamis. She glanced sidelong at him. Stilgar said you gave moisture to the dead, is that truth? Yes. It's more than I'll do, can do. Don't you mourn him? In the time of mourning, I'll mourn him. They passed an arched opening. Paul looked through it at men and women working with stand-mounted machinery in a large, bright chamber. There seemed an extra tempo of urgency to them. What are they doing in there? Paul asked. She glanced back as they passed beyond the arch, said, They hurry to finish the quota in the plastics shop before we flee. We need many dew collectors for the planting. Flee? Until the butchers stop hunting us or are driven from our land. Paul caught himself in a stumble, sensing an arrested instant of time, remembering a fragment, a visual projection of prescience, but it was displaced, like a montage in motion. The bits of his prescient memory were not quite as he remembered them. The Sardaukar hunt us, he said. They'll not find much excepting an empty sietch or two, she said, and they'll find their share of death in the sand. They'll find this place, he asked. Likely? Yet we take the time to... He motioned with his head toward the arch now far behind them. Make dew collectors? The planting goes on. What are dew collectors? he asked. The glance she turned on him was full of surprise. Don't they teach you anything in the... wherever it is you come from? Not about dew collectors. Hi, she said. And there was a whole conversation in the one word. Well, what are they? Each bush, each weed you see out there in the erg, she said. How do you suppose it lives when we leave it? Each is planted most tenderly in its own little pit. The pits are filled with smooth ovals of chromoplastic. Light turns them white. You can see them glistening in the dawn if you look down from a high place. White reflects. But when Old Father Sun departs, the chromoplastic reverts to transparency in the dark. It cools with extreme rapidity. The surface condenses moisture out of the air. That moisture trickles down to keep our plants alive. Dew collectors, he muttered, enchanted by the simple beauty of such a scheme. I'll mourn Jameis in the proper time for it, she said, as though her mind had not left his other question. He was a good man, Jameis, but quick to anger. A good provider, Jameis, and a wonder with the children. He made no separation between Jaff's boy, my firstborn, and his own true son. They were equal in his eyes. She turned a questing stare on Paul. Would it be that way with you, Ursa? We don't have that problem. But if... Hara! She recoiled at the harsh edge in his voice. They passed another brightly lighted room, visible through an arch on their left. What's made there? he asked. 
They repair the weaving machinery, she said. But it must be dismantled by tonight. She gestured at a tunnel branching to their left. Through there and beyond, that's food processing and still suit maintenance. She looked at Paul. Your suit looks new, but if it needs work, I'm good with suits. I work in the factory in season. They began coming on knots of people now and thicker clusterings of openings in the tunnel's sides. A file of men and women passed them carrying packs that gurgled heavily, the smell of spice strong about them. They'll not get our water, Haras said, or our spice. You can be sure of that. Paul glanced at the openings in the tunnel walls, seeing the heavy carpets on the raised ledge, glimpses of rooms with bright fabrics on the walls, piled cushions. People in the openings fell silent at their approach, followed Paul with untamed stares. The people find it strange you bested, Jamis, Haras said. Likely you'll have some proving to do when we're settled in a new sietch. I don't like killing, he said. Thus Stilgar tells it, she said. But her voice betrayed her disbelief. A shrill chanting grew louder ahead of them. They came to another side opening, wider than any of the others Paul had seen. He slowed his pace, staring in at a room crowded with children sitting cross-legged on a maroon-carpeted floor. At a chalkboard against the far wall stood a woman in a yellow wraparound, a projecto stylus in one hand. The board was filled with designs, circles, wedges and curves, snake tracks and squares, flowing arcs split by parallel lines. The woman pointed to the designs one after the other as fast as she could move the stylus and the children chanted in rhythm with her moving hand. Paul listened, hearing the voices grow dimmer behind as he moved deeper into the sietch with Hara. Tree, the children chanted. Tree, grass, dune, wind, mountain, hill, fire, lightning, rock, rocks, dust, sand, heat, shelter, heat, full, winter, cold, empty, erosion, summer, cavern, day, tension, moon, night, caprock, sand tide, slope, planting, binder. You conduct classes at a time like this? Paul asked. Her face went somber and grief edged her voice. What Liette taught us, we cannot pause an instant in that. Liette who is dead must not be forgotten. It's the Chakopsa way. She crossed the tunnel to the left, stepping up onto a ledge, parted gauzy orange hangings and stood aside. Your Yali is ready for you, Uso. Paul hesitated before joining her on the ledge. He felt a sudden reluctance to be alone with this woman. It came to him that he was surrounded by a way of life that could only be understood by postulating an ecology of ideas and values. He felt that this Fremen world was fishing for him, trying to snare him in its ways, and he knew what lay in that snare. The wild jihad. The religious war he felt he should avoid at any cost. This is your Yali, Hara said. Why do you hesitate? Paul nodded joining her on the ledge. He lifted the hangings across from her, feeling metal fibers in the fabric, 
followed her into a short entranceway and then into a larger room, square, about six meters to a side, thick blue carpets on the floor, blue and green fabrics hiding the rock walls, glow globes tuned to yellow overhead, bobbing against draped yellow ceiling fabrics. The effect was that of an ancient tent. Hara stood in front of him, left hand on hip, her eyes studying his face. The children are with a friend, she said. They will present themselves later. Paul masked his unease beneath a quick scanning of the room. Thin hangings to the right, he saw, partly concealed a larger room with cushions piled around the walls. He felt a soft breeze from an air duct, saw the outlet cunningly hidden in a pattern of hangings directly ahead of him. Do you wish me to help you remove your still suit? Hara asked. No, thank you. Shall I bring food? Yes. There is a reclamation chamber off the other room, she gestured, for your comfort and convenience when you're out of your still suit. You said we have to leave this sketch, Paul said. Shouldn't we be packing or something? It will be done in its time, she said. The butchers have yet to penetrate to our region. Still she hesitated, staring at him. What is it? he demanded. You've not the eyes of the Ibad, she said. It's strange, but not entirely unattractive. Get the food, he said. I'm hungry. She smiled at him, a knowing woman's smile that he found disquieting. I am your servant, she said, and whirled away in one lithe motion, ducking behind a heavy wall hanging that revealed another passage before falling back into place. Feeling angry with himself, Paul brushed through the thin hanging on the right and into the larger room. He stood there a moment caught by uncertainty, and he wondered where Chani was, Chani who had just lost her father. We're alike in that, he thought. A wailing cry sounded from the outer corridors, its volume muffled by the intervening hangings. It was repeated a bit more distant, and again... Paul realized someone was calling the time. He focused on the fact that he had seen no clocks. The faint smell of burning creosote bush came to his nostrils, riding on the omnipresent stink of the sietch. Paul saw that he had already suppressed the odorous assault on his senses. And he wondered again about his mother, how the moving montage of the future would incorporate her, and the daughter she bore. Mutable time awareness danced around him. He shook his head sharply, focusing his attention on the evidences that spoke of profound depth and breadth in this Fremen culture that had swallowed them, with its subtle oddities. He had seen a thing about the caverns and this room, a thing that suggested far greater differences than anything he had yet encountered. There was no sign of a poison snooper here, no indication of their use anywhere in the cave warren. Yet he could smell poisons in the sietch stench, strong ones, common ones. He heard a rustle of hangings, thought it was Hara returning with food, and turned to watch her. Instead, from beneath a displaced pattern of hangings, he saw two young boys, perhaps aged nine and ten, staring out at him with greedy eyes. Each wore a small, kinjal type of Chris knife, rested a hand on the hilt. And Paul recalled the stories of the Fremen, that their children fought as ferociously as the adults. 
The hands move, the lips move. Ideas gush from his words and his eyes devour. He is an island of selfdom. Description from a manual of Muad'Dib by the Princess Irulan. Phosphor tubes in the faraway upper reaches of the cavern cast a dim light onto the thronged interior, hinting at the great size of this rock-enclosed space. Larger, Jessica saw, than even the gathering hall of her Bene Gesserit school. She estimated there were more than 5,000 people gathered out there beneath the ledge where she stood with Stilgar. And more were coming. The air was murmurous with people. Your son has been summoned from his rest, Sayadina, Stilgar said. Do you wish him to share in your decision? Could he change my decision? Certainly, the air with which you speak comes from your own lungs, but the decision stands, she said. But she felt misgivings, wondering if she should use Paul as an excuse for backing out of a dangerous course. There was an unborn daughter to think of as well. What endangered the flesh of the mother endangered the flesh of the daughter. Men came with rolled carpets, grunting under the weight of them, stirring up dust as the loads were dropped onto the ledge. Stilgar took her arm, led her back into the acoustical horn that formed the rear limits of the ledge. He indicated a rock bench within the horn. The Reverend Mother will sit here, but you may rest yourself until she comes. I prefer to stand, Jessica said. She watched the men unroll the carpets, covering the ledge, looked out at the crowd. There were at least 10,000 people on the rock floor now. And still they came. Out on the desert, she knew, it already was red nightfall. But here in the cavern hall was perpetual twilight, a gray vastness thronged with people come to see her risk her life. A way was opened through the crowd to her right, and she saw Paul approaching, flanked by two small boys. There was a swaggering air of self-importance about the children. They kept hands on knives, scowled at the wall of people on either side. The sons of Jamis, who are now the sons of Usul, Stilgar said. They take their escort duties seriously. He ventured a smile at Jessica. Jessica recognized the effort to lighten her mood and was grateful for it, but couldn't take her mind from the danger that confronted her. I had no choice but to do this, she thought. We must move swiftly if we're to secure our place among these Fremen. Paul climbed to the ledge, leaving the children below. He stopped in front of his mother, glanced at Stilgar, back to Jessica. What is happening? I thought I was being summoned to council. Stilgar raised a hand for silence, gestured to his left where another way had been opened in the throng. Chani came down the lane opened there, her elfin face set in lines of grief. She had removed her still suit and wore a graceful blue wraparound that exposed her thin arms. Near the shoulder on her left arm, a green kerchief had been tied. Green for mourning, Paul thought. It was one of the customs the two sons of Jamis had explained to him by indirection, telling him they wore no green because they accepted him as guardian father. "'Are you the Lisan al-Gaib?' they had asked. 
and Paul had sensed the jihad in their words, shrugged off the question with one of his own, learning then that Caliph, the elder of the two, was ten and the natural son of Jaf. Orlap, the younger, was eight, the natural son of Jamus. It had been a strange day with these two standing guard over him because he asked it, keeping away the curious, allowing him the time to nurse his thoughts and prescient memories, to plan a way to prevent the jihad. Now, standing beside his mother on the cavern ledge and looking out at the throng, he wondered if any plan could prevent the wild outpouring of fanatic legions. Chani, nearing the ledge, was followed at a distance by four women carrying another woman in a litter. Jessica ignored Chani's approach, focusing all her attention on the woman in the litter. A crone, a wrinkled and shriveled ancient thing in a black gown with hood thrown back to reveal the tight knot of gray hair and the stringy neck. The litter carriers deposited their burden gently on the ledge from below, and Chani helped the old woman to her feet. So, this is their reverend mother. Jessica thought. The old woman leaned heavily on Chani as she hobbled toward Jessica, looking like a collection of sticks draped in the black robe. She stopped in front of Jessica, peered upward for a long moment before speaking in a husky whisper. So, you're the one. The old head nodded once precariously on the thin neck. The shut-out mapes was right. Jessica spoke quickly, scornfully. I need no one's pity. That remains to be seen, husked the old woman. She turned with surprising quickness and faced the throng. Tell them, Stilgar. Must I? he asked. We are the people of Misra, the old woman rasped. Since our Sunni ancestors fled from Nilotik al-Uruba, we have known flight and death. The young go on, that our people shall not die. Stilgar took a deep breath, stepped forward two paces. Jessica felt the hush come over the crowded cavern, some 20,000 people now, standing silently, almost without movement. It made her feel suddenly small and filled with caution. Tonight we must leave this sietch that has sheltered us for so long and go south into the desert, Stilgar said. His voice boomed out across the uplifted faces, reverberating with the force given it by the acoustical horn behind the ledge. Still the throng remained silent. The Reverend Mother tells me she cannot survive another Adra, Stilgar said. We have lived before without a Reverend Mother. But it is not good for people to seek a new home in such straits. Now the throng stirred, rippling with whispers and currents of disquiet. That this may not come to pass, Stilgar said, our new Seadina, Jessica of the Weirding, has consented to enter the rite at this time. She will attempt to pass within, that we not lose the strength of our Reverend Mother. Jessica of the Weirding, Jessica thought. She saw Paul staring at her, his eyes filled with questions, but his mouth held silent by all the strangeness around them. If I die in the attempt, what will become of him? 
Jessica asked herself. Again, she felt the misgivings fill her mind. Chani led the old reverend mother to a rock bench deep in the acoustical horn, returned to stand beside Stilgar. That we may not lose all if Jessica of the Weeding should fail, Stilgar said, Chani, daughter of Liet, will be consecrated in the Seadina at this time. He stepped one pace to the side. From deep in the acoustical horn, the old woman's voice came out to them, an amplified whisper, harsh and penetrating. Chani has returned from her hajra. Chani has seen the waters. A susurrant response arose from the crowd. She has seen the waters. I consecrate the daughter of Liet in the Seadina, husked the old woman. She is accepted, the crowd responded. Paul barely heard the ceremony, his attention still centered on what had been said of his mother. If she should fail... He turned and looked back at the one they called Reverend Mother, studying the dried, crone features, the fathomless blue fixation of her eyes. She looked as though a breeze would blow her away. Yet there was that about her which suggested she might stand untouched in the path of a Coriolis storm. She carried the same aura of power that he remembered from the Reverend Mother Gaius Helen Mohiam, who had tested him with agony in the way of the Gamjabar. I, the Reverend Mother Amalo, whose voice speaks as a multitude, say this to you, the old woman said. It is fitting that Chani enter the Seadina. It is fitting, the crowd responded. The old woman nodded, whispered, I give her the silver skies, the golden desert and its shining rocks, the green fields that will be. I give these to Seadina Chani, and lest she forget that she's servant of us all, to her fall the menial tasks in this ceremony of the seed. Let it be as Shai Hulud will have it. She lifted a brown stick arm, dropped it. Jessica, feeling the ceremony close around her with a current that swept her beyond all turning back, glanced once at Paul's question-filled face, then prepared herself for the ordeal. Let the water masters come forward, Chani said, with only the slightest quaver of uncertainty in her girl-child voice. Now, Jessica felt herself at the focus of danger, knowing its presence in the watchfulness of the throng, in the silence. A band of men made its way through a serpentine path opened in the crowd, moving up from the back in pairs. Each pair carried a small skin sack, perhaps twice the size of a human head. The sack sloshed heavily. The two leaders deposited their load at Chani's feet on the ledge and stepped back. Jessica looked at the sack, then at the men. They had their hoods thrown back, exposing long hair tied in a roll at the base of the neck. The black pits of their eyes stared back at her without wavering. A furry redolence of cinnamon arose from the sack, wafted across Jessica. The spice? she wondered. Is there water? Chani asked. The watermaster on the left, a man with a purple scar line across the bridge of his nose, nodded once. There is water, Sayadina, he said, but we cannot drink of it. Is there seed? 
Chani asked. There is seed, the man said. Chani knelt and put her hands to the sloshing sack. Blessed is the water and its seed. There was familiarity to the right, and Jessica looked back at the Reverend Mother Ramallo. The old woman's eyes were closed, and she sat hunched over as though asleep. Say Adina Jessica, Chani said. Jessica turned to see the girl staring up at her. Have you tasted the blessed water? Chani asked. Before Jessica could answer, Chani said, It is not possible that you have tasted the blessed water. You are outworlder and unprivileged. A sigh passed through the crowd, a susurration of robes that made the nape hairs creep on Jessica's neck. The crop was large and the maker has been destroyed, Chani said. She began unfastening a coiled spout fixed to the top of the sloshing sack. Now, Jessica felt the sense of danger boiling around her. She glanced at Paul, saw that he was caught up in the mystery of the ritual and had eyes only for Chani. Has he seen this moment in time? Jessica wondered. She rested a hand on her abdomen, thinking of the unborn daughter there, asking herself, do I have the right to risk us both? Chani lifted the spout toward Jessica, said, Here is the water of life, the water that is greater than water, Khan, the water that frees the soul. If you be a reverend mother, it opens the universe to you. Let Shai Hulud judge now. Jessica felt herself torn between duty to her unborn child and duty to Paul. For Paul, she knew, she should take that spout and drink of the sack's contents. But as she bent to the proffered spout, her senses told her its peril. The stuff in the sack had a bitter smell, subtly akin to many poisons that she knew, but unlike them too. You must drink it now, Chani said. There's no turning back, Jessica reminded herself. But nothing in all her Bene Gesserit training came into her mind to help her through this instant. What is it? Jessica asked herself. Liquor? A drug? She bent over the spout, smelled the esters of cinnamon, remembering then the drunkenness of Duncan, Idaho. Spice liquor? She asked herself. She took the siphon tube in her mouth, pulled up only the most minuscule sip. It tasted of the spice. A faint bite acrid on the tongue. Chani pressed down on the skin bag. A great gulp of the stuff surged into Jessica's mouth, and before she could help herself, she swallowed it, fighting to retain her calmness and dignity. To accept a little death is worse than death itself, Chani said. She stared at Jessica, waiting. And Jessica stared back, still holding the spout in her mouth. She tasted the sack's contents in her nostrils, in the roof of her mouth, in her cheeks, in her eyes, a biting sweetness now. Cool. Again, Johnny sent the liquid gushing into Jessica's mouth. Delicate. Jessica studied Johnny's face, elfin features, seeing the traces of Liet Kynes there as yet unfixed by time. This is a drug they feed me, Jessica told herself. But it was unlike any other drug of her experience and Bene Gesserit training included the taste of many drugs. Chani's features were so clear as though outlined in light. A drug. 
whirling silence settled around Jessica. Every fiber of her body accepted the fact that something profound had happened to it. She felt that she was a conscious moat, smaller than any subatomic particle, yet capable of motion and of sensing her surroundings. Like an abrupt revelation, the curtains whipped away. She realized she had become aware of a psychokinesthetic extension of herself. She was the moat, yet not the moat. The cavern remained around her, the people. She sensed them, Paul, Chani, Stilgar, the Reverend Mother Ramallo. Reverend Mother. At the school there had been rumors that some did not survive the Reverend Mother ordeal, that the drug took them. Jessica focused her attention on the Reverend Mother Ramallo, aware now that all this was happening in a frozen instant of time, suspended time for her alone. Why is time suspended? she asked herself. She stared at the frozen expressions around her, seeing a dust moat above Chani's head stopped there, waiting. The answer to this instant came like an explosion in her consciousness. Her personal time was suspended to save her life. She focused on the psychokinesthetic extension of herself, looking within, and was confronted immediately with a cellular core, a pit of blackness from which she recoiled. That is the place where we cannot look, she thought. There is the place the Reverend Mothers are so reluctant to mention, the place where only Kwisatz Haderach may look. This realization returned a small measure of confidence, and again she ventured to focus on the psychokinesthetic extension, becoming a moat self that searched within her for danger. She found it within the drug she had swallowed. The stuff was dancing particles within her, its motions so rapid that even frozen time could not stop them. Dancing particles. She began recognizing familiar structures, atomic linkages, a carbon atom here, helical wavering, a glucose molecule. An entire chain of molecules confronted her and she recognized a protein, a methyl protein configuration. It was a soundless sigh within her as she saw the nature of the poison. With her psychokinesthetic probing, she moved into it, shifted an oxygen moat, allowed another carbon moat to link, reattached a linkage of oxygen, hydrogen. The change spread faster and faster as the catalyzed reaction opened its surface of contact. The suspension of time relaxed its hold upon her, and she sensed motion. The tube spout from the sack was touched to her mouth, gently collecting a drop of moisture. Chani's taking the catalyst from my body to change the poison in that sack, Jessica thought. Why? Someone eased her to a sitting position. She saw the old Reverend Mother Amalo being brought to sit beside her on the carpeted ledge. A dry hand touched her neck. And there was another psychokinesthetic moat within her awareness. Jessica tried to reject it, but the moat swept closer. Closer. They touched. It was like an ultimate simpatico, being two people at once. Not telepathy, but mutual awareness. With the old Reverend Mother. But Jessica saw that the Reverend Mother didn't think of herself as old. An image unfolded before the mutual mind's eye, a young girl with a dancing spirit and tender humor. 
Within the mutual awareness, the young girl said, Yes, that is how I am. Jessica could only accept the words, not respond to them. You will have it all soon, Jessica, the inward image said. This is hallucination, Jessica told herself. You know better than that, the inward image said. Swiftly now, do not fight me. There isn't much time. We... There came a long pause. Then... You should have told us you were pregnant. Jessica found the voice that talked within the mutual awareness. Why? This changes both of you. Holy Mother, what have we done? Jessica sensed a forced shift in the mutual awareness, saw another moat presence with the inward eye. The other moat darted wildly here, there, circling. It radiated pure terror. You'll have to be strong, the old Reverend Mother's image presence said. Be thankful it's a daughter you carry. This would have killed a male fetus. Now carefully, gently, touch your daughter presence. Be your daughter presence. Absorb the fear. Soothe. Use your courage and your strength. Gently now. Gently. The other whirling moat swept near, and Jessica compelled herself to touch it. Terror threatened to overwhelm her. She fought it the only way she knew. I shall not fear. Fear is the mind killer. The litany brought a semblance of calm. The other moat lay quiescent against her. Words won't work, Jessica told herself. She reduced herself to basic emotional reactions. Radiated love, comfort, a warm snuggling of protection. The terror receded. Again, the presence of the old Reverend Mother asserted itself, but now there was a tripling of mutual awareness, two active and one that lay quietly absorbing. Time compels me, the Reverend Mother said within the awareness. I have much to give you, and I do not know if your daughter can accept all this while remaining sane, but it must be the needs of the tribe are paramount. What? Remain silent and accept... This ends Disc 14. Discs 13 and 14. We had a double bill again tonight. I think double bill is the way to go, baby. Double bill is, is very, very intense. I feel infected with terrible purpose. And uh, mildly hallucinatory. 
Also, shout out to me pre-cogging putting that song on. I didn't even know she was going to mention the litany, but I kind of felt that she would. I felt that that was somehow in the future. Yeah. Oh! Dune, baby. Dune, make some noise. That most rare of things. The Dune Wave Audiobook Club. Epic activities in 2020 and beyond, baby. If you're listening to this in 2030, what's up? If you're listening to this in 2047, what's up? We was we was getting down, baby, in the early days of the psychotechnology on Wednesdays. Big shouts out to everyone who's been in tonight. Big shouts out to everyone who supported. Uh, thank you, uh, Timothy Delgado. And thank you, Bob L. Fishman. <laughs> God bless you. Says thanks for the vibes tonight. God bless you, baby. What's up, D-Man? Appreciate your... Yeah, boy, be tripping. And when I say tripping, I mean... Woo. Yo. Thank you all for being here tonight. Dune Wave Audio Book Club. Very, very rare. Very, very special event for the Meaning Wave Autonomous Zone family. God bless you all. Appreciate you. We'll be back tomorrow morning. Tomorrow morning at 7 a.m. CT, uh, celebrating 200 morning streams. 200 uh, consecutive consensual morning streams will be celebrated tomorrow morning. Yeah. Segment. Pi. Out. Square. I'm going to get out of here now. Make some noise for yourselves. Yo, that was crazy. We had more, um, so much stuff that George R.R. R. Martin ripped off. It's amazing. Shout out to George R.R. R. Martin. What a guy. Shout out to Oberyn Martel. Shout out to, oh shit. Who's, who's watching Mandalorian? Your boy, Oberyn Martel is the Mandalorian, right? And he's got that big stick, in it. he got the big metal stick. Money is on, like, a uh, Viper reference in the last episode of this season of Mandalorian. Strictly mythological, baby. Ooh. Yeah. All right, baby. Splash, splash, splash. We're getting out of here. Uh, make some noise for yourselves. We'll be back tomorrow, 7 a.m. CT on Twitch for the 200 stream party. Uh, tomorrow night on the stream, it's the Super Request Show. Come on through and get your Super Request. Super. Super. Only Super. Uh, once again, thank you for your support. If you want to support the wave, probably the best thing to do is go to meaningwave.com. Get yourself an epic shirt or hit the donate link. We've got Bitcoin, we've got Venmo, we've got Cash App, all that if you want to make a donation. Uh, if you're looking for more epicness, we've got uh, Lo-Fi Christmas Radio. Lo-Fi Christmas Radio 24-7 on the second channel. We've got a hell of a brilliant uh, playlist on uh, all your favorite streaming platforms. 
We got downloadable records on Bandcamp. Uh, whatever you need, baby, we got it. Wherever you are, we are. And if there's somewhere where you are and we ain't, you let us know. We shall set up our lemonade stand there. Three, two, one. Bye. Bye. Sweet dreams from and fam. God bless.